The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm Stephen May, contributor at Eureka, founder of Crikey, shareholder, advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Yes, folks, it's all three of us this week because we have just passed a million downloads in two years of doing it in Leclerc Cafe in Hawthorne. Uh, for the three of us, alternating each fortnight or each week, but uh, this week it's all of us to celebrate, so we thought we'd get together and celebrate a million downloads. What do you reckon, guys? Congratulations, Alan. Well, congratulations to you too. <laughs> well, well done. I mean, it's uh, so what, what is the history? This is a million downloads since you broke away from News Corp. Yes, well, so uh, when was it? Five years ago, Greg? Six, five or six years ago, we uh, I rang up Kirby. I was in doing Constant Investor yeah. from my little dunger in uh, Glenfrey Road uh, above the hamburger shop yep. and um, <laughs> decided I needed some extra marketing and thought, well, why don't we do a podcast? So I rang up Kirby, who I used to do Eureka Report with mm. uh, and who was at The Australian, and I was still working for The Australian, and said, let's do, a money, let's do a podcast. We'll call it Money Cafe and we'll just meet in the cafe and there'll be a bit of hubbub and that, that, how about that? We'll give it a, give it a go. It would have been quite a pioneering podcast back, back then. Yeah, well, and, you know, he said, okay, and we made it a joint venture between the Australian and the Constant Investor. It was a JV. And, um, and we are going along for a while and then I left the Australian and joined the New Daily. You broke up with Murdoch. And uh, that went for, it was okay for a while, about six months or so. And then the... The joint uh, venture held. And then the uh, managing editor of The Australian rang me up one day and said, um, we, we can't do this anymore with you. <laughs> you're <laughs> so too much of a climate change believer. You're, you're out. You're sacked. Yeah. And I said, well, you can't sack me because I thought of this and it's my, it's my thing. And he said, no, it's not. And so we had a fight. <laughs> and and then we had the uh, dueling cafes. cafes. That's right. Well, no, well, and the reason we had the dueling cafes is because the managing directors of Investmart, which is the uh, which was by then the owner of Eureka Report, yep, uh, and me, yes, essentially, I was working for I was working for Investmart then by then because Constant Investor had been sold to them, uh, and the managing director of the Australian. Uh, had a meeting in a pub. <laughs> not a cafe. <laughs> no, not a cafe. <laughs> they had a meeting to sort out who owned the Money Cafe. And it turns out everyone did. And they didn't sort out anything. <laughs> <laughs> so you both ploughed on. <laughs> so we, they decided, they agreed to, you know, just carry on. And we had two and Money they, Cafe. they blinked and they've renamed, they've, they've just blinked. like Leo. Elon Musk, and uh, you're still powering on on with the most popular podcast for business in the country, if not the world. Well, thanks to you guys, I might say. I mean, uh, you're well, the anchor, Alan. Yeah. We're just the we're yeah, just yeah. the well, cameo no, well, sideshows. Well, I, I, well, I'd, I'd help. I'm the I'm the money who shows up every week. But correct, <laughs> correct. 
So um, we bit a bit of breaking news. Uh, let's get on to the topics of the day. Bit of breaking news on um, tech earnings last night, James. You've yes. been up uh, since four a.m. <laughs> Not watching, quite. listening to this, haven't you? Not quite. Everything's on the west coast, so it's a bit more uh, palatable. Oh, but um, uh, Ap- uh, Alphabet shares, Alphabet, which owns Google, shares are up. Um, they had some really good numbers out of their cloud division, but Microsoft shares are down a bit. The the issue here is. And it shouldn't have really surprised anyone. But the issue is they've told the um, uh, punters that the AI revenue boom will be gradual. Uh, so the shares have gone oh, up. No. In, <laughs> shares have gone up in anticipation of this, but now they're saying, "Well, look, uh, middle of next year, that's when the money will really start to flow." Middle of next year, that's forever. I know. <laughs> um, I mean, you know. <laughs> These companies, uh, the, the numbers in these companies are still incredible. Oh, it's just, it's just unbelievable. I mean, even just the swings in the market caps. Yeah. So, so Microsoft, and I don't know how the thing trades aftermarket, but you know, in the aftermarket, yes. which we don't have in Australia, so Microsoft shares are down four and a half percent. That's that's wiped 113 billion dollars US off their market cap to 2.43 trillion, whereas Alphabet shares are up six and a half percent. So they've added 100 billion US to their market cap to 1.64 trillion. So you've had a 213 billion US dollar reduction in the gap of market caps between the two. So you've had two CBAs in the course of uh, (laughs) a couple of hours of of crappy after hours trade, which might not actually convert into real trade tomorrow morning. And we we rely on the the advertising dollar. And over our careers as journalists, we've relied on advertising. So... Google's advertising was 58.1 billion US dollars for the quarter. And if you think about that, that's actually the equivalent of 937 million Australian dollars a day. Every single day, they are banking 937 million dollars in advertising revenue. Destroying journalism the world over. Thieving our content. Have you ever seen a chart? Have you ever seen a chart of the American tech stocks versus the rest of the American market? You know, minus those tech stocks since the start of this year. No, no. Well, well, yes, that since I've seen it over the last ten years, actually. Uh, the rest of the market is completely flat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The rest of, and the rest of the world stock market is completely flat for yeah. ten years, yeah. and and all of the increase in stocks over that time has been these tech stocks. Well, in the June quarter, which they're going through now in America. Over 100% of the revenue growth is going to come from those seven tech stocks because the rest of the market's going backwards. Yeah. So, <laughs> so American hegemony yeah. is these seven, these seven companies. There's never yeah. been a global misallocation of wealth and capital dominance than what we've seen with big tech out of America in it's, the last 20 it's, years. It's like the, uh, the late 19th century with the railway barons. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, you yeah. Know, yeah. It, when you got, when but you I think that, it's more than that because – the railway barons were limited by geography. Like, these guys are everywhere all the time. That's true. And you've just got to, as a country, you've just got to work out how you can get into them. So I like the way that, that Morrison and Josh got into them over the uh, the propping up journalism with their uh, yeah. their World First Feast. Yeah. And the Irish, they've, they, they yeah. find them, they find Microsoft 425 million US dollars for LinkedIn data breaches in Europe. So, you know, in Dublin, the Irish have got into big tech and whacked them with a big fine. So, yeah. you've got to pick a few crumbs off the table as a, as a small nation up against these giants. Speaking of big tech, what do you think of Twitter going to X? Oh, oh God. Oh. <laughs> I, find Twitter, I find Twitter amazing. It's one of those rare businesses where uh, Elon Musk notionally owns it, but all the users think they own it. Yeah. 
and the railing against the changes by ordinary punters on Twitter as if they would know um, always sort of surprises me. It, it, it's <laughs> phenomenal. I mean, people are saying it's the stupidest rebranding ever, et cetera, et cetera. Look, it, it is stupid. It looks like some sort of a crypto porn brand, that UX uh, X lo- uh, logo. But at the end of the day, they haven't changed the, the URL. They haven't killed off the history of everyone's yeah. tweets. Yeah. And they can just bring it back tomorrow. So at the end yeah. of the day, it's, the I don't of, think it's going to be permanent. I just the, think it's The, the Finn Review, your illustrious employer, uh, had a piece this morning saying that they're tearing up between something between 13 billion and 50 billion in brand value. Yeah. yeah. Well, you couldn't create another brand this well known. No. There's no way X can ever be. It's, it it's is amazing. It's like, it's like is Alphabet and Meta, are they bigger than Facebook and Google no. as brands? No. It's, it, it should be the corporate name X, yeah. which owns Twitter in the model of Google and, and sure. Facebook. Is there a. Can you think of a brand, a, a major brand that has successfully changed its name and, and gone on to bigger and better things? I can't. Uh, Certainly not the other Mob's we're Money Cafe. Stru- we're all not, struggling. Not yeah. the other Mob's Money Cafe, that's for sure. <laughs> 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 uh, which is Money <laughs> Puzzle, which is a puzzle Shh, itself. Don't mention that. Oh, don't mention that. Gee, don't you know that? We'll edit that out, Greg. Yeah. Um, now, what about divorced billionaires? I have to ask you about that. I mean, oh. it's becoming a thing. It's always been. A well, thing. The, the first it's of them was Solly, Solly Lou. Well, well, there's a, I've actually got a list. There's a lot of them. So you're right. Solly Lou divorced Rosie a few years back, and Rosie married Alan Fells. That was quite an interesting. I don't think they're work. married. Well, they're no. They they're, fly on the private jet. Alan gets to fly on the private jet. In so. fact, they live they live apart. But he's travelling on the private jet. No, I thought they. Well, they're 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 they're, they're an item. They're certainly an item. No, no, I had lunch with Alan last week. And, uh, <laughs> okay. Rosie wasn't there, you say. So. No, well, he, Alan's having a lovely time. Yeah, <laughs> in a private jet and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but, um, you know, so Jerry Harvey, obviously, you know, divorced Margaret and married the staffer, Katie Page. Rupert married two staffers in Anna Torv and Wendy Deng. Uh, Len Ainsworth, the two divorces, um, uh, obviously, Mike Cannon-Brooks is the big one at the moment, who's yep. just divorced Annie, and that, I don't know, has that driven the sell-down in AGL, maybe, oh, I don't do you think? think so. or, no. <laughs> and then, obviously, Twiggy's the biggest one, where you've Twiggy's got... Twiggy's um, Yep. Look, looks like a 50-50 carve-up, you know. It's, it, he's been very, very generous in that carve-up of the assets. So he should be. Well, unlike Richard White, who's got a new partner and there's been no announcement to the Stock Exchange about his ex-wife getting some wise tech shares, um, unlike, say, the Platinum and the, the Nielsens, where they yep. did a 50-50 split on who had the controlling stake in Platinum Asset Management. So yeah. sometimes these billionaire divorces do lead to Stock Exchange disclosures and carve-ups and sell-downs, a la you know, Magellan yep. as well. I'd like to see a statistic on how many billionaires stay married. Well, I did have a look at who got – the big surviving marriages are probably Lindsay and Paula Fox, Frank Lowy and, and Shirley. Shirley passed in 2020 at, at 86. The one I like, though, is Dicker Data, where Dave Dicker and Fiona Brown are divorced, but they're still both on the board together. Yep. So that's uh, very unusual. Anna, Anna Murdoch got booted off the News Corp board the moment that uh, Rupert booted her out of the marriage. Yeah. Dicker Data is the example that shows it can – Yeah. Everything can roll on fine. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and then you got the widows who never got the billions, like Ros Packer, and it all went to, to James. Yeah. And uh, yep. 
Jeannie Pratt, you know, she didn't get the 20 billion, it all went to the, the kids. So I can, you know, some of these widows should be putting their hand up and saying, I married to you for 50 years well, and then you've given yes. it all to the kids. Well, Gina and Gina Reinhardt and the the, what a the, court the case Wright that's family are in the middle of one of the all-time ding-dong battles. Yeah. And, and, and it's it's fascinating. You read – so obviously uh, Lang, Hancock and Peter Wright found this iron ore together and so that's the main split. But there's – a huge number of other parties who were trying to get a slice of the pie. Gina's kids. And then there's this other guy who was around the hoop at the time. He wants a slice. And or... half a percent of $200 billion a yeah. year. Or, you know, the, the iron ore numbers are Australia's equivalent of big tech numbers. I mean, they are just massive. Yeah. And even small royalty streams are, make you a multi-billionaire. Yeah. Well, there's a, you know, there's a uh, company on the ASX that a Lucas spun off that is – one royalty stream of, of one part of one bit of BHP's mine in the building. And it's one of our top 150 companies. Yeah, it's just so. a bloody royalty stream. That's right. So, yes. yes, that's right. Uh, okay. I, uh, I want to I find out about um, Macquarie's AGM tomorrow and the PwC connection from Stephen. Yes. Oh, yes. So the AGM is tomorrow. I'm not happy they're doing their dodgy um, press conference before the meeting to feed the chooks. Yeah, I'm very happy. Yeah, yes. you like that. So you get fed <laughs> yep. and, then, and then they come to the AGM and they do an hour of big presentations and they have a half hour break for tea and bickies. So if people aren't disinterested by then, you know, so the journals have already oh. been fed, the presentations, the, the, the shareholders have literally been fed and then they, Glenn Stevens will come on and say, and now we give you one chance for debate on all eight items. So they don't even follow the agenda. And this, again, is designed to limit the debate, reduce attention, et cetera, et cetera. But look, the two issues, or the three issues that will run big tomorrow are uh, remuneration, because ISS, the big proxy advisor, have recommended against, refused to have a meeting with them, but recommended against for the first time in many years. So you'll have a double-digit protest vote on REM for the well, first time since ISS 2007. Says, ISS says they're all getting paid too much? Yeah, ISS just says it's overpaid. And Nick O'Kane, the head of Commodities and Global Markets, 57.6 million pre-tax probably is a bit too much. It is the highest amount that any millionaire banker at Macquarie has been paid. He's had $120 million over three years. My view is there should be a rule no one gets more than the CEO and the rest of his team should have got a bigger piece of that 57.6. So I think there will saw, be a bit of a protest. I'm sure Shamara agrees with that. Well, she's, oh, she's she signed, she, she signed off on it. And <laughs> Nick O'Kane has built this business. Yeah. So you can argue, you know, he has literally built it from the ground up. And if Goldman's poached him, it would cause a lot of damage. So Macquarie refused to meet with ISS? Is no, no, other way around. What? ISS didn't meet. Well, I don't know. I can't explain it. But um, it just went, you know, everyone's happy, everyone's voting in favour, and all of a sudden ISS is against and they haven't gone face-to-face right. to, to talk it through, which is, you know, independent. I'm not going to get, you know, charmed in a face-to-face. But um, And then the other one will be the PwC audit. So I asked last year about – I sent in the question beforehand, has the ten, has the, how long have PwC been the auditor and has it ever gone to tender? And, and Glenn Stevens read back a prepared answer, quote, PwC has been the auditor of Macquarie for quite a long time. And then Kristen Stubbins, who was the acting CEO, who is, is the auditor signing partner, told me afterwards, yes, there's never been a tender, but we've always been the auditor. Can't remember if it was Coopers and Lyban or Price Waterhouse, but it goes back into the 90, early 90s. Uh, so they've had over a billion dollars, PwC, from a Macquarie. Fees. 79 million last year, 72.7 the year before. And they're promising a comprehensive review, which they'll announce the outcome of next year. So that's an interesting question. Will the most lucrative contract 
for PwC in Australia, the Millionaire's Factory. Give them the boot next year, part of this feeding frenzy pile-on that we're seeing run across the country. So you're going to ask them that I'll be asking all about that, yeah. Yeah, of course. As well as all their gouging profits out of UK water authorities, which are now going broke and getting nationalised by the government. That's the other sexy issue. They've made billions. Yeah. Government's bailing them out. Everyone's unhappy and uh, and they're just the world's biggest manager of infrastructure who are very unpopular in Britain at the moment. Right. (laughs) Um, now, what about the big upcoming? We've got inflation at 11.30 today, which well, obviously doesn't suit our timing, and then the Fed tonight. You were on the news last night, Alan, were saying basically 1% is the, the predictor. So 1%, uh, I've been, I'm told by the uh, – well, by who told me that? I can't remember. I think it might have been Alan Oster of NAB. So if it's above – if the CPI is above 1% for the quarter, uh, there'll be a rate hike in August. If it's below 1%, there won't be. Right. So okay. there's your um, there's your guide. There's your guide. If it's exactly one percent, we should toss a coin. <laughs> we should probably will be toss a coin. Um, yeah. Okay. And well, if it's uh, so, uh, the headlines will be for the for the annual uh, inflation rate. One point one percent for the quarter turns into six point three percent for the year. Yep. One percent turns into six point two percent, and point nine percent for the quarter turns into six point one percent. It's kind of basically – that's you, basically you, it. You think – yeah, okay. It's just very high still, isn't it? It's very it's high. It's very high. It's too high. needs to be dealt with. Put the rates up, I say. And power will put them up as well next – It's on the way uh, down. It's on the way down. I think I think power's guaranteed to put them up. 25? Yep. yep. Oh, well, it's 100% uh, odds in the market yeah. for, for a US rate hike. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if, the, if the Australian RBA continues to pause – uh, in August, and uh, the Fed's hiking, then the Australian dollar is falling. Yeah. Now, with, with questions, I think we should start with something on the sunnier side. So let's go with Ali. Looks like the mortgage cliff isn't so scary. Interest rate rises have peaked or almost peaked. The country is in full employment. We're all getting stage three tax cuts. Do you foresee a few podcasters owing Governor Lowe an apology by the Melbourne Cup? It's still the lucky country. Stay positive. I don't know. Well, what are we apologising to apologizing? Dr. Lowe for? He, he, didn't he say there'd be no rate rises till 2024? Well, maybe next Melbourne Cup will <laughs> apologise to him <laughs> if rates are back at zero. I mean, I, I, I don't know what – maybe Ali didn't didn't go on to a fixed rate or she he or she has paid off their mortgage or – but I reckon if you're currently – and the peak is around now – if you're going from two point something percent to six point something percent, yeah, uh, you're not feeling that the mortgage cliff is all fine and dandy. Yeah, <laughs> no, but but it's interesting though because there's a lot of a lot of the aggregate data shows that things are fine. I mean, as she says, unemployment three and a half percent. There probably isn't going to be a recession because uh, population growth is too high. Yep. yep. Um, so, you know, no recession, low unemployment. You know everything's fine, but what's going? What's happening is there's a whole lot of people in this country that have got savings and no mortgage who are just uh, killing it. Yeah. So income inequalities at a record a whole level lot of the world over and in Australia, and hey? things like jacking up uh, hex debts by seven percent on the young people are brutal and unfair, and the inequality is has gone too far. I think yeah, so there's a lot the of point. people having a personal recession. Yeah, yeah, and a yeah. lot of sectors having a recession, not, an abs- yeah. a clear recession. So Retail. And I think the other thing to remember, I think this is the big thing for Michelle Bullock, maybe the rate hikes will be done by the time she's 
uh, in the chair, maybe. I don't know. But if, if, if monetary policy works with a 12-month to 18-month lag, the, the last few rate hikes are going to be coming through in 2025. The impact of them is going to be felt in 2025. So I think this whole everything's cool now, like, just wait. <laughs> The, the, we, inflation's still above 6%. It bet we need to get that down. We need things to cool down. Uh, Miles says, Alan on the ABC the other night, uh, you compared top funds performers for the financial year. My question is, since the default, my super or balanced option is the one that is used for comparisons against other superannuation providers, do you think providers put in an extra effort to make those options shine at the expense of some of their other investment options? Uh, no. The, the my balance, the, the, the balanced uh, fund draws on the investments in the other strategies. So if you have a, if you're all in on global equities, which I'm not, not sure who would be, then, you know, the balanced fund takes a little slice of the global equities pool and a little slice of the property pool. So to make the my balanced fund, it's, it's hard for them to make the my balanced option shine in some way. Well, it- because that's their performance. Also, the it's board. worth perhaps noting that there are, there are two different things. There's my super and there's balanced. They are different things. Yes, that's true. So what I was talking about on the on the ABC News the other night was the balanced options. Uh, they may or may not have been my super, but my super is the default. Yeah, yeah, um, they're usually which, pretty similar though. Uh, yeah. So the answer, Miles, is that they don't. Uh, juice up. They don't sort the be ordered by PwC and it'll be all fully, you know. The only question, if you want to run a conspiracy argument against the super funds, it's it's the regularity of the valuations and the and the being being harsh on the unlisted assets. That's the only area. I think, I think we might have a question, question. about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, I'm happy to go to it then. But I, I've, I've obviously been really focused on this over the last 12 months. The super funds are so sensitive about this and the processes that they've put in place are deep and extensive they are more they are more worried about the unlisted valuations in property than the than the listed REITs are yeah they are ta- they are taking it more seriously or they are being harsher than the listed REITs but it's also interesting isn't it how with the earnings season that this has only happened the last few years that the annual performance of the big industry funds is now becoming sort of a media event you know, yeah, super sure. has announced yeah. Aussie super has announced so yeah. it's actually it's actually switching but you don't get a lot of depth to you like you just get what's the headline percentage yeah, annual yeah, yeah. return we need some more granularity on on exactly how they're going yeah. uh lisa asks why aren't the banks regulated to pass on the full cash rate on savings accounts instead of making us jump through hoops to try and claw as much interest as we can out of our banks by meeting their individual requirements for bonus interest well, look, I'm a, I've long argued that the big four banks are an oligopoly that are ripping Pete Australians off. I ran against Peter Costello in Higgins on that platform mm. saying, regulate them, Pete. Use How'd you the, go? Oh, I got 2% or something. But um, <laughs> So I agree. The banks are making $40 billion a year pre-tax, preying on docile customers who don't ring up and haggle and all this sort of stuff. So there needs to be some sort of a deposit product which is linked to the RBA official rate and it's automatically passed on at the appropriate margin of the net interest income of the big four banks. Instead, they, all the big commercial players haggle and get good deals and the great unwashed sit there with their funds earning nothing because there's no mechanism in the products or the regulations that gives them automatic uplifts in their de- deposit rates. What, what about what about we start the Bank of Maine and you could do that yourself and then it'd be a competitive product? 
Well, we have had a question of do we trust Judo Bank? And one word answer is yes, you can. Your money is safe with them. If they're offering more than the others, go with them. Oh, so we've jumped ahead. But, uh, but of course, if they, if they regulate uh, the banks to make them pass on the uh, interest on interest rates on the savings account, they'll have to do it on the, uh, the loans as well. Yes, yeah. Uh, which probably won't require regulation. And the other scary thing now is yeah. the banks are now, you know, four of our top seven companies are banks. If you suddenly actually threw the regulatory kitchen sink at them, you'd actually be impacting uh, industry fund returns yes, and yes. Uh, three million Australians who own bank shares. So it, it, they're too big an important store of wealth in Australia to actually smash the crap out of them in a regulatory sense. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike foreign companies like Rio Tinto, you could just come in and steal their assets and it wouldn't matter. But if you blew the banks up, it would blow up the nation's wealth. <laughs> Your turn, Steve. Now, Vivian wants to ask Alan about the integrity of ACCUs, particularly uh, Better Carbon. And is uh, Vivian saying that she had a look at the Carbon Integrity Explorer and some of the Better Carbon projects and got a few sort of high-risk flags. So I guess the broad question is, Alan, is can we trust ACC valuations and auditing and project integrity? ACUs, uh, ACUs are issued to uh, basically to farmers and other people who, uh, who uh, store carbon through sequestration in trees or reduce their emissions beyond what they're required to do. And then there's a market in them, a, a, spot, a spot market, and the current price is $28.50 per ACU. Um, and it goes up and down. It did get up to 50 went down to 20 I think, um, up to $28.50. So, look, it's a market. Uh, they're, they're, they're highly regulated. Uh, they're issued by the Clean Energy Regulator, uh, there's an argument about whether they're issued uh, to people who don't deserve it because they're not growing enough trees or it's being improperly measured. And I had a big piece on Monday in the New Daily in which I tried to examine these issues and then the end came uh, came to the point of saying, I can't, I'm not equipped to, to resolve this. I mm. just don't know. It's too hard. I mean, I, I've had... I got a, I got an hour's briefing with the clean energy regulator. I, I spoke to some farmers in southeast southwest Queensland near Quilty. They've got seventy two thousand hectares. This is Sasha and Will Trelaw uh, who run cattle, and they've got a, uh, a, a carbon farming uh, project where they reduce the grazing on a part of their farm, and as a result, the mulga grows right, and then. Somebody comes in and measures that, checks it out. Well, they measure it by satellites or something, and then the clean energy regulator says, "Yep, you know you've you've re, you've sequestered X tons of carbon dioxide in your mulga, uh, your mulga trees. Uh, mm. Here, have some accus, right? So they've earned. Uh, Will and Sasha Trelaw have earned four hundred and sixty-six thousand two hundred and ninety-four accus, which is currently worth." Thirteen point three million dollars. Wow! Yeah, right. right. So they're so they and I said to them, "So you're making more from carbon farming than from the cows?" And they said, "Well, it depends on the price." So we've had a really terrific cattle season. The cattle price yeah. has been great. So we're making more from the cows. Um, but uh, you know, the, the carbon farming provides a decent 
set of you know decent underpin- underlying earnings. So the net, Alan, is we've sent independent auditor Cola in to do an investigative journalism blitz in your busy schedule on the integrity of ACU pricing and the system. What's your net? Is it okay from everything you're, you, you've dug under the bonnet and you're uh, comfortable with the system and the valuations and the integrity? I, I'm afraid uh, I don't know. Can, can I ask a different no. question? Would you rather this, pro, this program was there than wasn't? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, so the, the Climate Change Authority, which is the government body that governs this area, um, uh, issued a report in March and the f- opening sentence was, it's too late to, achieve, to avoid dangerous climate change by just reducing emissions. We have to remove carbon from the atmosphere as well. And then uh, Ian, uh, Professor Ian Chubb, who looked into the ACU system, uh, he also in his forward said um, uh, the only technology at the moment that will remove carbon from the uh, atmosphere at scale is photosynthesis. There, I mean, there, everyone's working on yeah. uh, methods of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but they haven't got there yet. The only one, the only thing that'll do it, is photosynthesis. So, uh, we actually have to do it. We have to find a way. And this system encourages a lot of tree, tree planting. So, Andrew, Mac, Professor Andrew McIntosh from ANU, who used to be a part of the the uh, system of governing this, but he left. Uh, he's the he's the main critic. So he's uh, he's criticising it. And when it came down to it, and I quoted him on. Uh, Monday, when it comes down to it, he says, trying to do this sequestration and growing trees in the outback, which they're doing, out the other side of Burke uh, and southwest Queensland, is too risky. It's too hard. We have to grow trees uh, in the east, in the east of the country, where it's you know where the pastures are good. The far, but the trouble is that that's very productive land. And so it's, got, it's, it's more costly, you know, to, to grow trees there instead of grazing sheep and cattle. It's like the old, when we go to a CSR AGM and Ian Burgess saying it takes 28 years to grow uh, pine plantations. It's just uneconomic, you know. At the end of the day, growing trees no, but, is but, a low return they, agricultural endeavour. Well, yes, that's if you're trying to cut them down. But, but growing the trees from the beginning sequesters carbon. Yeah. You know, it, it does sequester carbon all the time. Anyway, look, um, there's just no doubt that we have to grow a lot of trees. The system that we've got now uh, pays the farmers to do it. Uh, my point fundamentally is that, although I'm not sure about the integrity of the system, that the price of the accus is not enough. It's too low. Yeah, it's not encouraging. So it enough. needs to. It needs to, in order for to encourage farmers to actually plant trees rather than just reduce the grazing. The the uh, accused price would need to be a hundred bucks, and that would if the price was hundred dollars, then farmers would start planting trees instead of grazing cattle. And are you right? putting that on polluters or government to fund that? It's got to be well, it's got to be government because the polluters there isn't enough demand yeah, from yeah. the polluters. Yeah. I mean they they um, they have to buy some, but not not enough. So the government has to. So I I said in my piece that it's it's like. It should be seen as being like what the central banks did during the pandemic, which is that they bought bonds to push the price up yeah, and get yeah, the yield down. So it was, it's called yield curve control, and, and J- the Bank of Japan still does it. Just a shame you can't print well, trees like you can print money. Well, so the thing is that um, 
it was decided that the pandemic was a national, a gro- you know, a, a global emergency, right? And all everyone jumped in. Governments, team Australia. Buddy, t- well, no, it was team the world, right? <laughs> um, and central banks all cut interest rates to zero. They printed tons of money, bought bonds to keep rice- interest rates down, and governments just bloody spent like buggery uh, and increased their deficits. And I'm saying that climate change is as much an emergency as the pandemic was supposed supposed to be. End, yeah. of, end of the lesson. So Vivian just unleashed a bit of a rant there. Thank you, Vivian. Uh, Paul says, Stephen mentioned last week that there is less and less diversity in the ASX 200 thanks to the big players gobbling up the smaller fish, companies going private and leaving altogether. Begs the question, does this hinder the desire to invest in ASX 200 ETFs if the, diversif- the diversity is minimising? Well, look, Paul, I do think it is a crisis in uh, the fact that 29 big companies have been taken over in the last four years. And when I say big, I'm talking, you know, the likes of Sydney Airport, Simic, Spark, HealthScope, Oz Minerals, Crown, Coca-Cola, Amatol, Oznet. And we've only had one float above 100 million in 12 months, which was Redox, which is performing poorly, floated at 255, now 221. So we've only got about 180 companies, and I'm saying companies, not property trusts, licks, or some other dodgy thing that appears in some <laughs> top 150. We've got 180 companies on the ASX from you know the likes of Borrell and Mervac, you know, that are worth over a billion dollars, and it's thinning out. And we're we're going to lose Costa, Invacare, Origin, Newcrest, United Malt in the next six months under agreed takeovers already signed. Yep. I don't think there's enough thinning out to make ETFs based on the ASX 200 unviable, but I do think that we're seeing the public market, just like we're seeing listed stock pickers from the platinums of the world, it's thinning out because you get better returns in private equity, industry funds are privatising and foreign globals are gobbling up Australian companies and we're not producing enough multinationals that are based in Australia like CSL. Yep. And that's, you know, we're not producing enough of them and when we do produce good ones, they get snapped up and taken over. So it's uh, an issue for direct investors in the share market, bad for them, but I guess you would say it's good for the country because we're all benefiting through our super funds. Well, when Newcrest gets taken over for $29 billion, you know, it's good, but it's now run from Denver. Yeah, you know, but Do we want to be a branch fun. office economy? That's my question. Yeah. And uh, do we want to all be talking about how our Microsoft shares are going? Well, or do we want to be talking about Computer Share and Cochlear and QBE and Macquarie and the great yeah, it's a, small Australia, number of Australia, Australian globalised companies? Australia as a whole is a branch office of Washington and Beijing, is it not? Yes, but with our compulsory super, we should have enough pool capital to nurture and develop global Australian-based, headquartered and largely owned companies. And we just haven't produced enough for various reasons. The investment bankers say this is a cycle and it'll bounce back, but I'm a bit with Stephen. I'm yet to see the bounce back. Uh, Eric says, long time, first time, etc. I draw your attention to a n- to next investors and pos- to possibly get some insights. Well, I'm sure they do what they do is somewhat legal. I find it unethical. They recently announced a new addition to their portfolio in the way of heavy minerals, H. 
VY is the code there, which had the stock pump from 14 cents at the open to a high of around 39 cents before closing at 22 cents. This one sits in a long line of stocks held by the company, and from what I gather, they never buy into the companies, but are given shares, quote, in lieu of payments for marketing services. Stephen, I think you've had a look at this. Look, uh, it is incredible. It's true. So, Heavy Minerals announced, I think it was July the 10th, they announced a placement of 3.75 million shares at the nominal price of 11.33 cents. So, that was $400,000 worth of shares or about 5% of the company, so $10 million market cap. And they just gave them away to this this mob called Next Investors, who then put out an email to their massive email list saying, we've added this company to our portfolio and the stock has gone for a massive run. So this business model is Tiddlers gift this outfit free shares and they say, we've deemed this company good enough to be in our portfolio because they do have a track record of Tiddlers performing. So there are some funds there that have performed. Right. And it literally, they're market movers. They can drive so the do share they, price up. Is Next Investors a fund manager? Or well, is they've got, they're, they're a fund manager and a stock tipper effectively. And right. companies are giving them free shares to plug them. And the plugging comes in, we've agreed to accept their free shares in our portfolio. In other words... We so think they, they might go for a run, and do, they do go for a run. It's but do they, pl- do they imply that they've bought them? No, it says it's we've added them to the portfolio right? for but, free. But that, <laughs> do they say for free, though? I mean, do they make it clear yeah, that they've yeah, got yeah, the shares for nothing? Well, when you read the ASX announcement, it says, it, it says quote, in lieu of marketing services. So I'm going to launch my own, launch my own Stephen Main. Um, I won't go to your AGM if you give me some free shares, and you, could, you can call it in lieu of critic management. And uh, that's going to become my new business model. What, what, How could, do these guys get away with that when we can't it? even give specific financial advice yeah. and they can cop free shares for plugs? I it's would. amazing. It is amazing. The ASIC ought to, get, uh, ought to have a look at this. There ought to be a law against it, you reckon, Alan? Well, I think it needs to be looked it, at. It, the problem is the anything goes placement system. You should not be able to give away stock to non-shareholders, let alone for free. So it should be all placements should be cash, not in lieu of. I reckon that's the tweak to the law we need. Yeah. I would call your uh, new service Main Train. Well, it's just mafia. It's just brick through a window stuff, isn't it? You know, <laughs> give me some protection <laughs> money and I'll leave you alone. That's the, that's the model. Macquarie, I'm happy not to go tomorrow. Just you know, give me a call. Garth says, can you please tell me why managed funds and lick funds are allowed to express returns before fees and charges? And Garth mentions that Wilsons say that they're the WLE Wilson Leaders Fund advertises a 14% per annum return. But if you look at ShareSite, according to Garth, the return is only 9.34% when you net off fees. So I guess the, the question is, should there be another law which says that fund managers have to advertise their post does that, does that mean that, that Wilson's uh, fees are 4.5%? Surely not. Well, there might be some compounding and some success fees because often quite a few of these funds have that anything above 15% return, you get you know, super, oh, super incentive fees. fees. I think tax is the other thing that can be a big oh, swing yeah. factor sure. as well. Yeah. yeah. Right, so okay. I think, uh, you know, you do hear, yeah, I, I hear of licks whinging about the way other licks report and it's not apples and oranges or oranges and oranges, I should say. Maybe there does need to be some sort of standard. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a standard form of would help investors. There's so many leaks. Yeah. It'd be good to have one way of reporting all this, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, it's like uh, there's a new law in New South Wales, I think it is, where you have to put the total price of a funeral on your website when you're selling funeral services yeah, because right. of all the add-ons. Yeah. And uh, Graham Samuel came in and forced Australian Airlines to advertise after-tax after and fees uh, airfares. Yep. Whereas you go to Europe and you buy a $2 airfare, a two-pound easy jet <laughs> flight, and it costs you 100 bucks because they don't have the taxes in the advertised price. So the general rule of you must advertise after the net, the after net, everything... Yes. Except for salaries. We always quote salaries pre-tax because we <laughs> like to uh, maximise them to have a go at the fat cats. Yes, that's right. Um, okay, so uh, we're starting to run out of time. Uh, uh, Warren says, what do you reckon about the AT1 SPP? That is the Atomo Diagnostics uh, uh, share price. What are they, what's this SPP yeah, stand it's, it's for? SPP, share purchase share plan. Share purchase so plan, a, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you've looked into this, Stephen. So yeah, look, there's a tiddler us. called Atomo Diagnostics there. Only market cap's only 18 million. They've just raised 1.25 million in a placement at 3.6%, and now they're asking their shareholders to put up another 2.75 million at the placement price of 3.6 cents or a 2.5% discount to VWAP rounded to the nearest the half being volume weight average, average price. price. Now, I had a look at them. So, Atomo Diagnostics is a, was a COVID surger. So, they were, oh. they were uh, shares were at 50 cents when they were selling their rapid antigen tests in the peak of COVID and now they've crashed. They've got 50 million of accumulated losses. They've only got 10 million in the bank. They're now selling pre pregnancy tests and HIV tests. And what's interesting is, is if every one of their 8,400 shareholders applied for the 30,000 SPP, that would be $252 million, yet they're only asking for $2.75 million. So it, it just highlights how companies always assume only a tiny pro proportion of the shareholders will actually stump up the cash. But with the stock at $0.03, cents, I would probably give it a miss because I've found my experience has been titular SPPs, particularly when they're raising more from retail than the earlier placements, is normally a warning sign that they're running out of cash, they've got cash burn, and these guys are burning a million a month. This is a, good, this is a good question from Duncan. The insanely hot ocean temperatures in the Atlantic are setting up for a potential devastating hurricane season in the US. Historically, has damage from major storms like Hurricane Katrina been good or bad for US markets or specific stocks? Um... Well, well, insurers take the hit mostly. Yeah, but the, but they get to put their premium up too. Yeah, I uh, mean, so actually, it's a bit, it's a sort of a double-edged sword for um, insurers, isn't it? Well, one interesting thing I, I read this great stat about Australian insurers. So we're coming into a La Nina, yeah. as opposed. Sorry, we're coming into El Nino. We've been in La Nina. El Nino has typically has forty percent less catastrophes for Australian insurers than. La Nina, because we you, you don't get as much. It's dry, so you don't get the floods. So, so, so floods are more of a problem for insurers than bushfires. Bushfires, yeah. Is that right? There you go. That's I right. didn't know that. Yeah. But what? But so what they're saying is you might have this double hit. Insurers are whacking up their premiums in an extraordinary way, extraordinary. But their their costs might be about to subside too because the weather patterns are more favourable in Australia. Yeah. In well, Australia. guys, we had our Manningham Audit Committee meeting the other day and you got the annual insurance claims report and, look, it's not it's not good. Premiums are going up a lot. Um, you know, it's it's putting pressure. It's, it's really adding to the cost pressure. So there's no winners from massive disasters, but you get this fake sort of narrative. It's like post-war. 
it causes all this economic activity. So there's a GDP boost. But people ignore the destruction of wealth and the balance sheet destruction. So any form of disaster or war is a wealth destroyer and a, and a balance sheet destroyer. But there often will be lots of economic activity, GDP activity, to rebuild. Great, great question as to how, whether Australians will keep copying 10, 15, 20% premium rises too. At the moment, it's close to an essential expense. It's non-discretionary, but I don't know if that changes. Be interesting uh, just on the El Nino thing, if you've got a place anywhere near the bush, make sure your insurance is in place. Yes. Yeah, well, straight look the, out for your premiums too. It's going to be, well, it's, it's going to be a, a big bushfire Tough couple season. Of years. No, no. Well, anyway, thanks everyone for listening to our special edition of the Money Cafe with Stephen Main and James Thompson. Uh, I'll be back next week with Stephen. Uh, so send in a question and we'll answer it together by emailing themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. So until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. I'm Stephen Main, etc. And I'm James Thompson, Sean Declare columnist at the Financial Review. Talk to you next week. See you next week.